Aldrich in Loveless's Dragon Can't Dance say, you have to be blind not to see, you have to be deaf not to hear, that people everywhere just want to be people and that they're going to be that way anyway, even if they have to rip open the guts of the city. 1940s, 1950s, once again crossing that Atlantic, but this time, joyously, numb to the ancestral groan in Olokun's belly, responding to the call of this step, motherland. No Jamaican, Bajan, Vinci, Grenadian, Trini or Tobagonian is British. We was British, educated, hardworking, loyal to Queen and her country. When Lord Kitchener sang, London is the place for me, you see, is that self we believed. And then, three years later, he edited, revisited, with eyes wide open, a realization that if you're brown, they say you could stick around. If you're white, well, everything's all right. But if your skin is dark, no use to try, you're going to suffer until you die. You see, people just want to be people. Carrying all kind of colonial baggage is so it is to be West Indian, Caribbean, colonial citizen. And at that time, we know misconceptions, rations, dirty bath waters, no Irish, no dogs, no blacks, irrational justifications as to why we should go back home. You see, our very presence was a reminder, a confirmation that we have met before, that this mother ripped us from our own, now sold. And you see how our presence rips open the guts, the insides that hides the ugly past in the not-so-pretty present. And we know not all skin teeth is smile, because when people just want to be people, we perform in a public masquerade, constantly having to prove we are black, brown, red, yellow. But look how we could do. All you have to be blind not to see how we do what we do. And still, even at the top of our game, get your black hands off of me. And those black hands feed, hold and comfort this black body. We were neither fish nor fowl, and now I see, acknowledge, a kind of continuity. The button for me, finding roots, you see, is not about fighting for visibility. It's a journey to open space for my three, map out roots, share the legacy with eyes to see and ears to hear that people everywhere just want to be people. Hello, everybody, and welcome once again to the Critically Speaking Podcast. I'm your host, Jafar Iqbal, excited again to present the fourth episode of this series looking at systemic racism and white privilege 
in the arts in Wales. Now, the piece you heard at the beginning of the episode is called People Just Want to Be People, written and performed by the brilliant Dr. Adiola Davis. As an artist, Adiola is interested in carnival, masquerade, and ritual. How communities express their sense of identity and belonging through the creation of sacred spaces and the reimagining of multiple self-articulations. It was an honour to share some of her words, and I encourage you to seek her out. Our discussion this time is with Joe Murphy, who has been artistic director of Sherman Theatre in Cardiff since 2019. As well as stints as associate director at Soho Theatre and the Old Vic, Joe was also artistic director of Nabokov Theatre Company for six years. Joe started the conversation by giving his thoughts on the creative contributions you've been hearing at the start of each episode. So let's get started. This is episode four of the Critically Speaking podcast, season two. I didn't know the other artists, so that was a real treat to hear their reading and hear their pieces. And it's an interesting thing, isn't it? I find like, I'm sure we'll get into this later when we start talking about it, but equal parts fury and hope and hearing both of those intertwined with each other feels like a tone of this year. And I thought all the pieces captured that in a really beautiful way, a sort of acknowledgement of anger, but also an understanding of the need for hope. So I thought they were really beautiful. So yeah, thanks for sending them through. Really appreciate that. A good place to start is probably asking about the anger. Like, where do you think the anger comes from? Well, I think, you know, it's interesting. It's, I mean, I think it comes from exactly, as you said, the things we're going to be talking today. I think it's the systemic nature of it. And the whole year has been a revelation year for me. Of course, too late and too little, considering I am in just about every privileged demographic you could possibly imagine, right? I mean, all of them. And while I feel like I've been aware, this year has been a huge dropping of the veil and a huge understanding of my own ignorance, I suppose, in that. That learning experience has been extraordinary. A huge takeaway from this year is that it's not about individuals, it's about systems. And of course, about individual responsibility, but the war is so much bigger than that, and so much more complicated than that, and the structures that need unpicking are so much larger and so much more complicated than that. So the anger to me, not that I could talk for the communities that have been affected at all, but from the conversations I've been privileged to be a part of, from the things I've been hearing, from the things I've been reading, seems to be about white people getting here too late, being too late to the party. The anger and the exhaustion of having gone on about these things for so long and nothing being done. The fury at sympathy and interest seeming to come when somebody gets shot and then vanishing again. Just the the sheer exhaustion of burden of education to educate people, to keep saying the same arguments over and over again and to not be heard. And then even worse, to be heard, exploited, commodified, and then dropped. You know, I mean, the list just goes on and on and on. And I think that fury is well justified. I guess what I've been really interested by is how constructive the fury is. All the fury I've heard has been about change and has been about progress, and has been about enlightenment, and has been about forward momentum. There's an extraordinary grace and dignity in that, that even at this moment of anger, and the depth and length of the crimes and oppression, even in that, the the anger can still be graceful. Like, it kind of blows me away. Obviously, we all have the benefit of hindsight. How much of what you have just said were you aware of a year ago? Too little, I think, And my awareness was quite intellectual, I suppose, as opposed to in the body, sort of intellectually understood. And I think the big shift was I thought it was an individual problem. 
I thought individuals were racist. I thought individuals held these problems. And that isn't to, you know, say that uh, it's not an individual problem, but to understand that that has a context and a context that is a lot more complex, is a lot more systemic. And that challenge, I think the difference, another big difference between, probably you're right, even six months ago, let alone a year ago, of going, how do you begin to unpick a system by which is the system you interact with the world? Where do you start with that? It's like saying, how do you start to get off oxygen when you need to breathe oxygen to be alive? How do you do that? Where do you even begin? So I think that that revelation, while I understood... And obviously through friends, colleagues had seen and witnessed some of the ills of the world and some of the ills of the situation. It's the systemic nature of it. I think the depth of it, the breadth of it. The culpability also comes from benefit. I don't have to have been racist to have benefited from the systemic nature of it. And therefore I have a responsibility to give back and a responsibility to readdress that balance. How would you define whiteness? That is a super interesting question. I'm not entirely sure I have an answer for. I mean, it's um, obviously it has a basis in an aesthetic and a biological aesthetic. And then from that, I would say it's a series of systems of powers and privileges that allow me to pass through the world easier with less friction and less prejudice than my fellow travelers, probably. Have you benefited in your career from privilege? in relation to your fellow travellers? Yeah, I mean, undoubtedly. I think not in, probably in direct ways that I was not aware of. I've not been aware of direct ways. But the privilege of my middle-class background, well, began as a working-class background, turned into a middle-class background around my early teens. And the economic situation of my family allowed me to work for free or for very little money for the first few years of my career. allowed me to sustain myself. I mean, I had a job as well lovely bookshop in Muswell Hill, if anyone's up that way. Beautiful little bookshop. Sustained me for a long time. But I had that safety net, right? If I couldn't make rent, I could talk to my parents. And that is not a safety net available to all. I had the privilege of my education. I had the privilege of university. All of these privileges that allowed me to start the race a few steps ahead. And then probably, although again, not that I've been directly aware of this, but those unconscious biases, the fact that I am a white male of middle-class background has probably benefited me, right, in interview situations, in the way I am perceived, particularly in directing, which is an authority game. You know, you are being given authority responsibility. I think the vision of authority, what authority looks like, what authority sounds like, has probably benefited me in that career. So yes, I think so in in ways I have not been aware of. And again, this last year has been a huge moment to understand that, to see that, to try and educate myself around that. Is that a conversation you had as an organization as well? Like, did you sit around a table and talk about that? Yeah, it's been a huge, a huge year for conversations for us at Sherman. A huge part of the summer for us, though, has just been listening. So we've been just in conversation with our associate artists and with artists of color who we've been working with over the last five years. And I've just sat on a Zoom and I said, look, if you want to come along, please do. It'd be great to hear. And I've just sat and listened. A lot of my colleagues have been doing that and they've been doing it in various forms task forces, groups, you know, all the kind of amazing groups and gatherings that came up over the summer. So yeah, there's been a lot of talking, but I think there's been a lot more listening. And that has felt incredibly valuable, moving, eye-opening, scary, inspiring, kind of all the above. You're still getting to grips with everything that's going on, and obviously everything has shut down for nearly a year as well. But I feel like you came in at a point where the show was kind of at a turning point. 
But it was interesting that you've gone from a white woman then to a white man. Were you aware of that? Like, hey, I'm another man coming into a job into Wales. Yeah, I mean, you're always aware of that context. It's hard because, of course, I don't think of myself as a white man, right? I'm the world treats me as a white man in the same way any bias, prejudice or privilege works, right? You don't internally think of it like that, but the world treats you in a different way. So I was aware of that and I had to trust that the board knew what they were doing. They met all the candidates they wanted to meet. It was an open process. There was a fair process. And I felt that I had something to offer. I felt that I had a passion for the artists here, for the sector here, for the people here. And I felt that I wanted to have a go at it. And if people were going to give me that chance, then I was going to grab it with everything I had. So to answer your question, yes, of course, it's a thing, right? And a lot of the leaders of Artistic Organization Wales are white, and quite a few of them are male. So well, why do you think that is? Why, I mean, why, why disproportionately white and disproportionately male? Yeah, it's a huge question. It's a huge question. I think it's like the same question is why is the world like that, right? Like the world is disproportionately white. By the world, I mean people in the positions of powers in the world. And I think a lot of that comes to exactly what this podcast is about, right? Which is the system has benefited those two demographics for a very long time. And so naturally, those two demographics find themselves in positions of power because of the privilege and benefit of that. And hopefully now we can disrupt that and intervene with that and change The why is a really complex issue that I think goes all the way through from the way school is, what education we're taught, the way we're treated there, what people think other people can do in jobs. Those, you know, a a whole series and systems of prejudices and biases that have created the world and system that we live in now. And I think theatre is not immune from that. It is part of that wider problem. I was really interested in the statement that you guys sent out in the aftermath of the BLM explosion and all that. And it was a really bold statement. And one of the first things in that statement is you saying, hey, there were failings. Can you talk about those failings? What were you referring to? Yes, I think those failings are about representation. They're about who is authoring our work and what we do on our stages creatively, behind our stages, in our offices, on our board, in our communities, in our audiences, what work are we doing? Now, I think Sherman has actually a really great pedigree and history at trying to reach out to its community, at trying to diversify its voices. And so it's not like I think that statement was saying, oh, this is a sea change. We need to change everything we're doing. I think it's to say we've been trying, we've had successes, we haven't had enough, we haven't gone far enough. We want to re-energize that commitment, want to deepen it, we want to work a lot harder We have this phrase that we're talking about at the moment about like, if we can change the storyteller, then we can change the story. And if we can change the story, then we can change the world. So job one is like, how do we change the storyteller? Now we're a writer's theater, right? Like it's an amazing part of Sherman's history. It's been my career. And I think writers absolutely sit at the heart of changing things. Because if you have a writer from a different background or community, they're probably going to write for actors from a different background of community. You're going to need directors from a different background of community. Sound designers, composers, artists, the whole thing gets changed because the story you're telling has to be told with authenticity. That is a big drive for us now is to change our writers, change our authors, but also authors in a broader sense. Like who gets to decide what work we're making? Who gets to produce what work we're making? Who gets to sit on a board and talk about what work we're making? 
who gets to participate in what work we're making. You know, so it was when we say author now, we're trying to broaden that to say it's everyone who partakes in the work. And that's what's amazing about fear, I think, right? Like to partake in it is to be an author of it. So we want to deepen and diversify that. And while I think we've made great strides in that, we have to go further. We have to do more. I would agree that you have made great strides in recent times, and especially since everything that's been going on, I think that a lot more opportunities have been given to artists who previously hadn't. But then I would argue that beforehand that wasn't there. And, you know, you've, you talked about a richness and diversity in the writers and the directors, but your last program was all white writers and all white directors. So I understand that you found more diversity now afterwards. Why weren't you searching for it before? Yeah, I think that's the great question. And I think that's part of the failings we have to talk about. And I think it wasn't that we weren't searching for it. I think it was that we didn't have a deep enough understanding of those communities. We didn't have a deep enough understanding of who's out there. We didn't work hard enough to go looking for it. Like we didn't understand what, how, our, how our call outs, how our messages, how our interactions weren't getting out far enough and deep enough. You do sit in the heart of Cates though, and you are next to the union and you're in Cardiff. I mean, the people are there. Yeah, 100%. And, you know, across what we've done, there's so much. I mean, the Sherman Five program, which we've worked on and is funded by the amazing Paul Hamlin, has been breaking down barriers and communities of how they access our theatre for five, six years now. We offer free tickets, subsidised tickets. We offer travel. You know, we've seen an amazing breadth and diversity of community come into our building through that. And we're now starting to find artists through that as well, which is a sea change. We've had main stage community productions featuring huge amounts of people from Cardiff, of communities from Cardiff. We've been awarded the first Theatre of Sanctuary in Wales. We've got, you know, our introduction to playwriting and access schemes, Death Theatre Club, all sorts of things where we have been reaching out to our community and talking to them. But I think the difference is we haven't necessarily been seeing all of that work on our stages. And that is where the change has come over this year, I think, to go, that's where we need to work harder. All these amazing communities we're working with, we're interacting with, there's artists we're meeting with, now let's put them front of centre. Let's work harder to put them front of centre, to see them on our stage, to see their story represented. And I think that is the sea change from this year. It goes back to the question, why wasn't that happening before? Why weren't they front and centre? Like, while you do fantastic work, and Chairman's Wife is one example of that, it, it is tremendous. But when it comes to programs being announced and seasons being announced and costs being announced, there's very much a familiarity to it. To a certain extent, there's a safety to it. And it is kind of like, hey, we can rely on these people who will get bums on seats, who will produce good work. And it's not a shot at those artists or those casts, but why not put front and centre these other communities and these artists before? We know the answer to why now, but why not before? Well, I suppose it's hard for me to talk... Before me, I wasn't in those decision rooms, I wasn't in those places. I suppose Sherman has gone through a huge history in the last five to six years of having to rebuild itself. I can only imagine that decisions and casting decisions were done in the light of that rebuild and to rebuild brand trust, to rebuild those connections and of the artistic choices of those days. I suppose in terms of my first season, I think it was simply a lack of awareness and a lack of understanding from my point of view of those artists, the need to connect to those artists and the need to get those artists onto our stages. And those are the failings I talk about in that statement. And those are the failings that we're trying to correct now. When you were sort of going through your season and you finalised it, did you ever look at it and just go, hey, oh, <laughs> everyone's white. We should probably look into that. Yeah, of course it does. You know, you get to a new theatre, you've got 
a few months to build a season that's going to last you a year, right? So you're looking, what assets do you have in play? What writers do you know? What can I get up and running and secured in that point? What is already in a conversation? What is already commissioned? You know, you've got a huge number of conversations. You look at those things and you go, also, I have a duty to the audience and we have a duty to great work that our audiences want to see. We're looking at what our audience have come to previously. We're analyzing, you know, all these kind of things. And then you build it. And of course, you go, wow, that's really white. And we need to make sure that we balance that out in other areas in terms of creators and casting. The truth is, as I said, there's been a sea shift in me and in my understanding over these last six or seven months. And I can look back at myself and castigate myself for that ignorance and for that lack of hard work in terms of finding those diverse voices and making sure they're front and center, which I do and I have. But all I can do now, right, is try and push forward and amend for those mistakes and get those artists out there. How will you be changing that? So we've got a number of things that we've done. One of the things has been this much more open call-out system that we've been working on since maybe kind of March. And that has been working really well. We've been working hard as well with all the community links that we've built up with Creative Engagement Department and with Sherman 5. It means that actually there's quite a lot of community groups we can talk to and access quite quickly. And we've seen some really interesting people come forward out of that and out of those communities and say, oh, I've got a story to tell. You know, in the heart of Cardiff season, it's been really amazing to meet lots of new writers and lots of new artists that we haven't worked with before. I mean, we have Nia Morais, whose piece Krafanga has just been released now, which is Welsh language piece. Nia's 24. She's mixed race. She grew up in Fairwater and she's writing in the Welsh language. And this is her first ever piece of theatre. You know, it's like so exciting for us to be on that journey with her. That has really changed the way we think about what are the breeding grounds for our artists. How can we be fueled by our community more? How can creative engagement and Sherman 5 actually be a pipeline for the artistic program and for our artists? And how can we foster in the communities that we're meeting and working with an artistic voice and say, if you've got something to say, we want to help you say it. And we've noticed a sea change in that. And that's just the beginning of that. But it's been amazing what that has shown us. It's hard to talk about it because obviously, again, the theatre has been shut for so long. And so it's really hard to see it in action right now. But the one thing that I would challenge in regards to what you're saying is that while, yes, it is good to have the open calls out, at the moment, the Sherman is still very white just in itself as a venue. As far as I'm aware, you don't have any non-white staff or permanent staff. Is that right? That is right, yeah. Yeah. People are going to react to what they see. And like you said before, like you bring writers in who will write for actors that look like them, perhaps. And that will then bring in audiences who look like them, perhaps. But if you're coming into a space where that already doesn't exist, how do you change that? Why should I go to the Sherman where as soon as I go in, everyone who greets me as terms of a permanent member of staff is white? How can I trust them? That's a huge question about how you can trust a group of people because they're white. Like, I don't think any individual should be held accountable for their group. Just because you're a white person doesn't mean you're more or less trustworthy, I don't think. But in terms of what I understand the question to be about, how do I feel safe in that context? How do I feel represented in that context? I think you're absolutely right. I just think it's a question that needs to be answered. But changing a permanent workforce is not a quick situation. Like that, that takes a lot of time. And it's something we want to do. Of course we do. But also we've got to ask ourselves about, you say looks like me which is right, but not all diversity is visual, right? Not all diversity is visible. And across the Sherman staff, we have a huge amount of diversity in terms of socioeconomic situation, in terms of sexual orientation and identity, in terms of a load of other different backgrounds, life experiences. So while we do have to improve our visual diversity, and I believe that that is a hugely important thing, and I think you're right, 
very difficult to walk into a space where nobody looks like you, or very difficult to walk into a space where on the surface people are not the same as you. The intimidation of that, the isolation of that, the otherness of that is a real problem and is something that we have to fix. But there are a number of ways that we're attempting to fix that. And in terms of diversifying our workforce, in terms of visual diversity, is something we need to do more of. But that is not a quick fix. And it's also not something I can entirely do in lockdown. It's something that we have to do over a period of time. We have to change our recruiting protocols. We have to change the kind of people that we're getting our job application offers out to. We have to work harder when those come up. But in lockdown, when we've lost 50% of our income, I'm not really at liberty to start hiring and changing those things. Our board, obviously, it's a very slow beginning, but it is a beginning in terms of diversifying that. So I think that I would challenge the thoughts in some ways about what diversity is and visible and invisible diversity. I would acknowledge that our permanent staff force needs to diversify in terms of its visual diversity. And that is a process we're committed to, but it's not a quick process. And it's not a process I can do a lot of things about while I'm in lockdown until we're back up and running, until we are in a position where we will be hiring more people. Also, it is actors and writers, of course it is, but it's also composers, sound designers. You know, across the season, we're working with a lot more diverse artists from different backgrounds. And what starts as freelancer or casual engagements, we hope will in the future turn into more long-term engagements. There is a level of mistrust for arts leaders in Wales because some communities have said, well, you just have not served us or it's been very tokenistic. So... If someone comes to you and says, hey, I've got an idea and I want to connect with the Sherman, but I don't feel comfortable being in a space with with you, let's say, because whenever I've spoken to an arts leader, I just don't like it. Is there something in place that you have at the Sherman where you go, okay, well, you understand that. This is what we're going to do. We have that in a few ways about the way that we approach that. I think a mistrust of arts leaders, by the way, is much more understandable than a mistrust of white people because, you know, arts leaders make mistakes all the time. There's a couple of things that we do. There's a position and an attitude now that we've taken this year of we get it, we've made mistakes and we're going to continue making mistakes. But we're also going to continue to keep turning up and we're going to continue to try and get better and to improve and to listen. And that might be exactly as you said in a scenario where somebody doesn't feel that I'm the person they can talk to about that. So we're running a project, one of the Heart of Cardiff projects, it's called Centre Stage. It's a piece by Emily Garside about the LGBTQIA plus community and their experiences. And of course, there's a lot of people in that community that might not feel happy or safe telling their story to me as a straight white man. I can understand that. So we're working with Trans Pride Cardiff and other groups to make sure that if somebody wants to tell their story to someone of their community or someone they feel safe, we will empower them to do that. And we will work with local groups to ensure that is done properly with a duty of care. And that widens out to any community that wants to talk to us, wants to pitch to us, whether it's through our associate artists, our wider Sherman family, we will ensure that if somebody wants to, they have the opportunity to talk to a member of their community or somebody they feel safe talking to. I suppose in a community is how you self-define, right? If like somebody says, look, I believe I am of this, and I therefore would like somebody else who identifies with that, whether that's colour, gender, you know, whatever it might be, we want to make sure that we establish that. Now, the formalities of that, so that we can make that a formal system, hasn't been put in place yet. We have all those artists and people around us, organizations, again, through Creative Engagement, Sherman 5, and artist activities we work with that we seek advice from and work in consultation with. But I also understand that, you know, that's a hard thing to ask as well, right? It's a hard thing to say to an arts leader, I don't trust you, even though I'm coming to talk to you about a project. And so we also have to figure out how we take the burden 
off the individual to have to ask for that and make it much more of a ubiquitous offer that you can happily take up or not take up as opposed to something, another othering experience where you feel you have to ask for special treatment. And we're also working to overcome that at the moment as well, how we can make a process and a policy around that. You've kind of alluded to it, and it was in your statement as well about doing a consultation, doing a review. You kind of sort of mentioned it. Where are we with that? Like, how is that going? How is Yeah, I mean, it's good. You know, it's again, there's a frustration of the end of the world that we find ourselves in, which is meaning that progress is slower than I would like it to be. It's mostly still listening. As I said, we've not really convened, but offered a, a volunteer group for people to come and talk to us. And that has been incredibly eye-opening and profoundly impactful. And so I would still say we're in the listening phase at the moment. We've put into action our creative and freelancer diversification you know, like across the seasons because we can act on that immediately. We started to work, as I say, on the board. Again, within the Sherman team, while we acknowledge the lack of visual diversification, there is a lot of invisibility, invisible diversity within that that we want to protect and support more and want to increase our visual diversity. But that is a much more long-term plan. So we're still in the listening phase. We're still in the shooting ideas around phase. We don't want to come out with something too quick. We don't want this to be tokenistic. We don't want this to be reactionary. We want this to be long-term. We want this to be strategic. And we've been trying to talk on a sort of short-term, medium-term and long-term the short-term thing is, well, artists and storytellers, we can diversify like right now. We don't need to wait for that. We can get moving on that right now. Medium term is board and workforce diversification or visual diversification. That can be put in process now, but it's going to take longer for us to see. And then those long-term diversification is all about how we work in schools with young people, which Tim, our creative engagement manager, does an exceptional job of. And how do we work harder for that? How do we Tell people who feel that theatre isn't for them, that it is for them, about people who maybe have told that their story doesn't matter, that their story does matter, and that we want to put it on our stages. And how do we get in at that educational level, that really young person level, so that you can go from the classroom to the writer's room with us and always feel like this is a home and a place where your story can be told. And that's the real long-term aim, I suppose. wanted to add, sorry, on the um, theme of tokenism and connecting with communities from a very early age, I am so on board with that. I just wanted to know how you plan on doing that without kind of evoking this white saviour complex. Because I think as a practitioner, I feel like a lot of people, I mean, I can't speak of everyone, but myself, definitely. There's this kind of imposter syndrome, I feel like, am I being approached for a job just because I fit certain categories that I, I can have that kind of insight because I'm a black female? What's different from tokenism, right, is a genuine philosophical ethos, drive and policy that is about diversity of voice, that is about richness of voice, and is about saying unheard voices deserve to be heard wherever they're from and whoever they are. And to not say, oh, we just want to hear that story, so we tick a box and get some funding for it. And I think that is about working with communities. I think it's about getting out of the way and saying like any resource and expertise we can give to tell your story, we want to support, but we're not here to tell you how to tell your story or what story you should be telling. That's for you to decide, not for us to decide. Now, that might mean that you want to talk about trauma. It might not. It might be that you want to talk about your ethnicity. It might not. We're not here to tell you that. You have to tell whatever story you want to tell. 
So we're working with Hayat Women's Trust, who are an amazing group, and they have a project called Young Queens, which works with young Somali women from about 12 to 14. They do all sorts of creativity, from dance to poetry to theatre, all kinds of things. And we're just at the very beginning of a relationship. The first part will be them writing poetry and we'll produce that audio and get it out there. And hopefully we can offer a home for Hyatt Women Trust in Sherman in the future as well. So we're trying to take that as the beginnings of how we might work in the future. Again, saying like, here's the resource, here's the building, here's the megaphone. You tell us what you want to say. If we can help you get that out there, if we can help you shape it in any way, then that's what we're here to do. If you need a roof over your head, that's what we want to do. But to try and resist the white saviorness of saying, can you tell us this story, please? And can you tell it in this way? Whereas I think if we can come together as storytellers and we can offer a platform, but we trust the artists to tell the thing that they want to tell, I think that will circumnavigate the tokenism problem. But again, it's a learning curve, right? I'm, I'm on a learning process. How do you get around the idea of, and again, this goes back to the idea of systemic prejudice of arts institutions, is you're in a building that serves alcohol. A lot of communities will not go into that place because there is alcohol. How do you deal with an issue like that? Because you are potentially, and I'm not saying that it will happen, but you are potentially removing an entire audience from your building because you need to sell alcohol. Yeah, and the alcohol question is really tricky, right? Because it's vital for our financial survival, right? That you have a bar, like theatres just cannot survive, and nor should they on purely public subsidy. You have to earn that money as well. So it's a complicated question. But again, I take the Sherman 5 model, really. What Sherman 5 does is it tries to sit down and say, okay, this community isn't participating in theatre. Why not? What's the barrier? Is it geographical? Is it financial? Is it cultural? Is it about elitism? And, And then we try and remove those barriers. If we want to talk to communities in which alcohol being sold on the premise is a problem, can we do a night when it's not sold on the premise? Can we talk to that community and say, what is it that would allow you to come into this place? What would make you feel safe here? What would make you feel engaged here? Isn't that tokenistic? Because then the other 364 days, there will be alcohol. If this is an effort to build an audience and build a relationship with the community, then are you just going to do no drink Fridays like every month? Or, you know what I mean? It's complex, isn't it? Because we have to understand the financial situation of the building and that we need to sell that to survive. And we also have to understand that a lot of other audiences also come because they like to be able to have a drink at the theatre. I think there's a difference between tokenistic and flexibility and there's a difference between shifting things up. And it's like, it might be that we, as an opening gambit, say, what if there's one night a week we weren't selling alcohol? Would that make a difference? And that community might go, yeah, that'd be great. We feel great. Or they go, oh, what? So for the other five nights, we're not welcome. And I go, okay, maybe that idea doesn't work. Is it a week where we don't do it? Is it like, you know, you have to be flexible to the needs and demands of many different communities and many different audiences. And I can only think that with an open heart and open eyes and an open gesture to say like, we want to hear what's stopping you coming. And if we can do something about it, we want to do it. But you don't want to welcome one audience to alienate another, right? It's all about trying to say, how can this building be flexible and reactive to as many different people and communities as possible within its financial reality, you know? You mentioned earlier about trauma and people having trauma that they might want to express or just having that and how that relates to you as an organisation and artists. Do you want to just talk about, in your terms, as someone who has now been here for a year, what that trauma is? Based on the conversations that you've had and what you know of the Sherman and what you've learned since you've come here, what is this trauma? And I guess more specifically, what are you doing to try and heal that? Well, I think there's a lot of traumas, right, is a sort of intersectionality of different traumas because we live in an incredibly diverse city and country. I think there's the Welsh experience and there's that oppression and, 
you know, Wales as the first colony of England, but then also being a benefit of empire. So there's a really complicated cultural scar. Like, and again, I can only talk about these as an external observer. I wouldn't want to talk for the Welsh people or for the community. I can only say in my experience what I've seen and what I've witnessed. There's also different groups living here in Cardiff and in Wales and the trauma of integration. There's the trauma of otherness. There's all these different communities living side by side in cheek by jowl and of belonging here or not belonging here. And belonging ultimately seems to be at the heart of it all, like a place where you belong, a place where you're accepted and a place where you're not othered. Seems to be a common trauma at the moment that runs underneath almost every community and group that I talk to. And I think it was amazing in the pieces you sent through, like I'm trying to remember that first line, people just want to be people. And that's about belonging, right? You are in a place that gives you the freedom to just be you. The beauty of Wales, the thing I found here that blows my mind is that the endeavour is, if you're here, you belong. And that's all you need to do. You only need to be here and you belong. It doesn't matter where you've come from. It doesn't matter who you are. You're here and you belong. And Wales at its best is that. And the trauma to me is where that endeavour has failed. The fault lines where that has not succeeded and how that integration has worked and how those communities are trying to live together and how one deals with a history of oppression and a history of oppressing and finds a way to bridge that gap and move forward together in a way that both acknowledges the sins of the past, but also allows space for forgiveness. And trying to manage that feels like a paradox that the whole world is trying to manage at the moment. Do you think the conversations and the listening that you've talked about that you're doing, is there optimism in your conversations? Or are you still facing difficulties? Are you still at the stage where there is still a lot to get out? Yes, we are. But I do feel there is healing, or the very beginnings of that. In one of the conversations, one of the mixed-race artists of Black Heritage, he's like, I've been trying to figure out why this feels weird, because I've been having these conversations so long in my life. I've been saying the same stuff over and over again for so long. And he goes, I think the difference is that a white person is listening to me. You're here, you're in the room, and you're listening. And I don't mean that in terms of me, Joe, I mean any that people are starting to turn up and listen to that trauma and to that experience. And I do think that's a change. Healing can only begin once we understand each other. Until everything has been acknowledged, everything has been put out in the open, everything has been talked about, space has been given for testimony, space has been given for trauma and confession and acknowledgement. Only then do we start to be able to find a way forward. So yes, it still feels overwhelming. Yes, it still feels like we're at the bottom of a huge mountain. But I do feel like I can see the mountain. And that in itself is a victory, I think. And you can start to see what needs to be climbed. And that in itself is a victory. It's like we were talking about earlier, about this combination of fury and hope. I feel like I'm seeing that in those conversations. None of these conversations I've found have been about despair or have been that there is no way out. All of these conversations I've been about like is if you turn up, if you acknowledge, if you move out of the way, if you change, then we can all move forward. So I found them to be at their root positive, despite being overwhelming, hard, complex, angry, and all the other things that they rightly are. Obviously, your first season isn't gone, but it's essentially, it's not what it was going to be. Are you hitting the reset button? It goes back to the idea of radical and change and you've talked about it yourself a lot that there needs to be a rethink about how we do things people have been critical i've been critical of the sherman there's a lot of again familiarity a lot of the same faces a lot of the same things being put on and almost like a safeness to it can that go on 
in this post-BLM world that we're living in right now, what does a season of the Sherman look like? Well, I mean, right now it looks like Heart of Cardiff, right? Like that is my first season to me. Although I think like my traditional first season say, in the theatre is gone. I do think we've been putting out seasons work. I think Interval was a season. It's quite reactionary and in the throes of the pandemic. And Heart of Cardiff feels like a more considered response and more of a statement of intent about what we want to be doing in the future. But, you know, we're also, it's complex. The question is complex. We have to also give, you know, I want to serve our audience and our traditional audience as much as I want to grow a new audience. I don't want to say, oh, audience who's been faithful to us, been loyal to us, seen our shows, been unbelievably generous and supportive through this crisis. They're still our audience. They mean a lot to me. I don't want to, there's no, I'm not turning on them or saying that the work they love doesn't have a place at the Sherman. I just want to increase, right? And say there's more voices to be heard. There's more work to be done. Also, a lot of those artists we were working with, again, are from a lot of different walks of life and from a lot of different backgrounds. And like you were saying earlier, you can't just fire your whole workforce. But it's the same. I back those artists. I love those artists. I'm not going to drop those artists. So I think as we move forward, it's just about space and time, right? It's saying like, instead of doing that season in a year, could we do it in two years and then open up a load of other slots interspersed within it to challenge ourselves to mix up the voices being seen on stage and heard on stage? So I don't think you will ever be the same again, nor should we. I don't think theatre will ever be the same again. I think that a season has to shift and change, but we have to honour our audience. We have to honour our patrons as well as challenge and offer new voices. Do you not think the Sherman has a loyal audience that will come and see shows? And do you not think that if you didn't, you know, using your word, like honour them with work that they already enjoy, that they will still come and see it? And if they didn't, that that's not a problem because... Because again, this is, a, this is a different world we live in. Like, why would you want to cater to someone who just wants what came before? Because we can't have what came before. No, I agree. And I don't think I'm saying I want to cater to someone who just wants what came before. I guess what I'm saying is that I want to offer a broad church and a broad language of things. And I think that doesn't mean just throwing out the old completely and ignoring it. I think it means blending. I think it means mixing it up. I think it means old and new in a season together. I think it means traditional canon play next to a radical new writing from a writer you've never heard of in a community you rarely get to see on stage. I think I think it's about diversity in its truest sense is what will make interesting and exciting theatre. And I think that we do have a loyal audience. I think that they do want to be challenged, that they do want to see rigorous work. They want to see different things. But I think it's also not their fault if they also do want to see a Shakespeare play. Like, that's fine. It's just as long as they're not only seeing Shakespeare plays. Like, that's where the problem comes in, I think. So what I want to try and do is honour all the different facets of what a theatre can be. I don't want to turn my back on any audience. I think it is a problem if people don't want to come see shows. It's really interesting. I had this when I worked at the Old Vic with Matthew Watchers. It's so complex. Like a theatre isn't a lending library, right? And it isn't purely safe. You shouldn't just come and get what you've known before. You shouldn't come and read the book and it should be exactly the same as the book you read before. It should have an intervention. It should have a challenge. It should have a radical resonance to today. But it also is for an audience. <laughs> it's like, how do you make it welcoming, accessible, resonating, whilst also challenging, complex, and totally new? Like That's the thrill and the excitement and the challenge of running a theatre and making theatre, right? And we have to find a way to answer that question better, and we have to find a way to answer that question with a more diverse set of authors, I think. Season two of the Critically Speaking podcast was the joint effort of many talented and hardworking people, and they all deserve to be praised. So I'd like to thank Dr. Adiola Devis, Aki Gurung, 
Alice Eklund, Connor Allen, Dure Shekhwar, Edith, Fez Mia, Jeffrin Khan, Jasmine Grace Okay, Mali Ann Reese, Radha Patel, Sadia Pineda Hamid, Selena Kaimaur, and Shane Nichols. I'd like to thank my guest for giving us their time. And of course, I'd like to thank Arts Council Wells for funding the project. Now you can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram by searching for Critically Speaking. And please, if you liked what you heard, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. But that's all for now. Until next time, thank you, diach, and goodbye.